We've come to John 12, 38 to 40. We'll actually read at 37. John 12, 37 to 40. And for today, our focus will be the second half of verse 38 through verse 40, which teaches they could not believe. John 12, 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him in order that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this cause they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are thankful for your holy word. We pray, Lord, that you will give us insight, true knowledge, accurate understanding of it, to believe it, and then to wholeheartedly carry it out with our life. May we walk with Christ, and may we follow the example of Christ in all things, conforming our thoughts, our values, our words, our actions to his. For we know, Lord, that he is perfect in all he taught All he said, all he did, was perfect, spotless, without sin. Grant to us, Lord, your grace to grow in true knowledge and godliness. We want to be like you, for we know, Lord, we shall spend eternity with you in your holy presence. Be with us as we seek to undergo a transformation, a transformation of understanding your word more accurately. For we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. In this section of John chapter 12, we've already covered the fact that Christ has appealed once more to the multitudes, to the crowds in the previous passage. In the previous couple of paragraphs, he has exhorted them to follow him, to walk in the light, to believe in the light. However, they don't do so. They don't do so. He says, or it says in verse 37, the scripture says, But though he had performed so many signs before them, they were not believing in him. They refused to believe, though the gracious and good words of Christ were preached. They refused to believe, though the many miracles of Christ were performed in their presence. They refused to believe. But this refusal to believe is not an accident. It's not unexpected. It is known and planned by God, according to verses 38 to 40. When the people refuse to believe, they are guilty for their own sins. They are held culpable. They are guilty before the judge of heaven for the sins they commit, for the evils they commit, for the crimes they commit. They are guilty. This is clear from the Apostle John's assertion in verse 37. And not only verse 37, but as we have seen in previous passages and previous messages, whenever people sin, they are guilty for their own sins. They are responsible for what they have done. They are accountable for what they have done. This is always the case. But also, there is another major factor involved in human actions, in the human will. And that has to do with the will of God, which is explained in 38 to 40 especially the last half of 38 to verse 40. The will of God, 
is a factor and is the major factor in all human action. This is what the Apostle John explains as the main reason why they did not believe. In the first part of 38, he has already told us, as we saw last week, that Isaiah the prophet preached Christ and he preached many things about Christ. And one of them is taken from Isaiah 53, verse 1. The first part of verse 38 is a quote of Isaiah 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed our report? Who has believed our report? That question begs the answer, Lord, very few people are believing what I'm preaching. When Isaiah preached, very few people believed what he preached. And even in the days of Christ, when Christ actually comes on the earth, Isaiah sees this in the future. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy of the future. And there also Isaiah sees that in the days of Christ, during his ministry on earth, few people would believe. Who has believed our report? Not only in Isaiah's time, in the time of Christ, few people believe. That's why he asks this question. He kind of complains to God, expresses to God that I am told by you, God, to preach, but nobody wants to believe it. Very few people want to believe the truth of God. That part is in the first section of verse 38. But now we've come to the second part of 38, 39, and 40, which emphasizes the sovereignty of God, the powerful will of God. In verse 38, he says further, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In verse 38, he's also teaching here that God's arm is not revealed to very many people. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Of what does the prophet speak? Or what is John meaning here? That the arm of the Lord is revealed to very few people. Because he says, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Essentially, he's speaking of the powerful work of the Holy Spirit at work in the heart of few compared to the many. The powerful work of the Holy Spirit in the human heart is at work in few people compared to many. That's why these two questions go together. Lord, who has believed our report? Few. And to whom, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To few. Very few people. So, few people actually believe and few people have the work, powerful work of the Holy Spirit at work in their human heart. That is what he means in verse 38. Let's have a confirmation of this interpretation to make sure that we are not false interpreters, but true interpreters. John 1, 11. John 1, 11. A couple of these verses will be similar to last time. John chapter 1, verse 11. He says, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. 
He came to his own, but they did not receive him. They did not believe in him. Just few people did, but generally they did not. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah 1, verse 9. Isaiah 1 and verse 9. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Who is the one who's going to leave the survivors there, the remnant there? Who's going to leave them there? Ultimately, it's not them. It is God who leaves them there. They are not the one who have the ultimate power to survive. It is God who has that power. That's why he says, unless the Lord of hosts. Hosts means the armies of heaven, the angelic armies of heaven. He has the one. He has the power. He is the one who is able to leave Survivors, And if God doesn't leave survivors, and he refers to the days of Abraham and Lot, Abraham and Lot, they survived the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, but the others did not. Most of the other people did not survive the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis chapters 18 and 19. Moreover, Isaiah chapter 10, Isaiah 10 Verses 20 to 23. Isaiah 10, 20 to 23. Now it will come about in that day that the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined overflowing with righteousness for a complete destruction, one that is decreed. The Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. The remnant mentioned here repeatedly in verses 20 to 23. He says the remnant rely on false hope. They won't do that. They will truly rely on the Lord. And when they return, which means repent, the scripture, when it says return in in the spiritual context, it means to repent, not return like go out, out of your house somewhere and then come back to your house. Go out of your country for a moment and then come back to your country. It's not talking about returning in a physical, spatial sense. It's talking about returning in a spiritual sense, repenting of sin, turning away from sin. And he says there might be many, many people as numerous as the sand of the sea, but only a remnant within them will repent or return. Only a remnant will Repent. This is the way in Isaiah's day. Even the passage we read earlier from Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, God was telling Isaiah that he wants him to preach. Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. And he said, God said, the Lord said, Go and tell this people. Isaiah is supposed to tell them this very message. Keep on listening 
but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and repent and be healed. Isaiah's commission includes announcing to the people the vast multitudes of people who hear his words, who read his words, that you're going to keep on listening, keep on looking, but not perceive, not understand. You have insensitive hearts, dull ears, dim eyes. That's the way it will be. You'll keep on hearing things, seeing things. You'll keep on perceiving things in some sense, but to no benefit, to no avail. These words are not going to be beneficial words to you at all because God has ordained it that way. God has planned it that way. In the time of Elijah the prophet, Elijah the prophet in 1 Kings 19.18, 1 Kings 19.18, it says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Baal, or Baal, is the name of an idol, a false god, a male idol. His counterpart is uh, Ashtoreth, or Asherah. And here he says, I will leave. God leaves 7,000 in Israel, in a nation of millions and millions of people, a very conservative, extremely conservative estimate, and in the time of Elijah, of the number of people in Israel is 7 million. 7,000 true believers out of 7 million people of Israel. A very conservative. More likely, they had about 70 million people. 70 million. But even with a very extreme conservative estimate is still very small percentage of true believers in the land of millions of people in Elijah's day. This is a universal truth. In every generation, this will be the case. Even in the New Testament era, even in the New Testament era, Luke chapter 13, Luke 13, 22 to 24. Luke 13, 22 to 24. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter by the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able, will not be able. The question, are there just a few being saved? His answer is essentially yes, compared to the many, few compared to the many people, because he says it's necessary to strive. Striving means what? Working hard. It is laborious. It's not an easy way to get to heaven. Strive to enter by the narrow door. The few will enter that narrow door, but many will not. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Not be able. The many 
will not be able. The few, yes, in percentage, but the many, the bulk of the percentage, will not be able to enter. Jesus is teaching this. And also, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added that day about 3,000 souls. This verse, this incident on the day of Pentecost, is used, falsely used, wrongly used, by megachurch pastors to justify the fact that they have thousands of people, at least hundreds, a few hundred, hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands of people in their congregation. This verse is used, but it's wrongly used. Why is it wrongly used? For one, they don't preach as Peter preached right here in verses 14, 14 to 36. They don't preach like this. They have humor. They have jokes. They have anecdotes. They are good storytellers. They are smooth talkers. It's like you're listening to a businessman, a salesman in the pulpit. That's the way they are able to talk and communicate their words. They're handsome. They're tall. They're clean cut. They've got all the expensive clothing, fine clothing. That's the way they are. Peter wasn't that way. His content in his sermon was not that way. And the way he came across was not that way. People didn't respect him. People didn't respect the others. Who is this Peter? Some, some nobody from Galilee, from that northern part where there are a lot of Gentiles. Hardly any Jews live up there. And where did this Jew come from out of Galilee? He's just a fisherman. He's not a rich man. He's not a, he's not a builder. He's not a, uh, a big business owner or anything like that. He's not a politician. He's just a fisherman. Who's this fellow? Peter. But not today. Today, if you want a big crowd, you work on all of these things. You work on perception. You work on how you are perceived by the people. You work on PR, public relations kinds of techniques to draw the attention of the people. And you don't preach against sin. And the wrath of God. You don't preach the wrath of God against unrepentant sinners. There is no one today with a megachurch who preaches like Peter did in Acts 2. There's nobody producing thousands of converts. Nobody. This happened because of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. That's how this happened. This happened because of the sovereignty of God in that particular incident. That's how that happened. Furthermore, 3,000 souls. Yes, that's a large number in quantity, but not in percentage. So far, we've been talking about percentage, not quantity. This is not a large number in percentage. Why so? How so? Well, according to a first century historian by the name of Josephus, he's usually known as Josephus, simply that, or Flavius Josephus. He estimates that there were 2.7 million people in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. 2.7 million people there in Jerusalem because they were obligated, the Jews were, especially the Jewish men, 
for three annual festivals, including the day of Pentecost, to come from wherever they lived around the world. That's why it says in verses 1 to 13 that there were many different kind of Jews and Gentile converts to Judaism present on the day of Pentecost from the many nations of the world, from Persia, from Rome, all over, from Egypt, all over the world. They came to Jerusalem. And Josephus says 2.7 million people. 2.7 million. Well, 3,000 out of 2.7 million is 0.00111111. which is one out of how many? One out of a thousand. One out of a thousand of the hearers of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. One out of a thousand followed Christ, believed in the gospel of Christ. Now, just in case someone disputes that, there is a liberal scholar by the name of J. 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 Period, Jeremiah. J. Jeremiah. He estimates that there were only 150,000 people only 150,000. That would still, in terms of percentage, be only 0.02%. 0.02%, which is two out of 100. Only two out of 100 people believed, even according to this modern scholar's estimation of the population during that festival. Two out of 100,000 believed. You see what we're talking about? What Isaiah's talking about? What John's talking about in John 12? It's always this way that there's only a few in percentage compared to the many. This is the biblical truth. And it's asserted this way not to discourage us, but to encourage us. Because when we're not in the presence of throngs of people, when we're not in the presence of throngs of people all singing together, all waving back and forth, lifting up our hands together, closing our eyes and have a, 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 a mighty rock band in front of us with the light show and the smoke show and all the things like that. When we don't have that, we think, are we crazy? Are we weird? What's wrong? Yeah, are we doing it wrong or are they doing it wrong? Somebody's doing it wrong because they hate us and we say that they are preaching a false gospel. They want nothing to do with us. They call us legalists. They call us Pharisees. They call us cultists. They say that we're teaching things that will send people to hell. Well, somebody is. Either they are or we are. We both can't be right. Correct? And that's why the Scripture tells us this all over the place, from Genesis to Revelation, to encourage us to press on because we are seeking the mind of Christ. We're seeking to do it in the ways of of the Lord. Also, the second half of verse 38 speaks of the arm of the Lord. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Let's also now show that the arm of the Lord has indeed reference to his powerful Holy Spirit who changes the heart of men. The first example is Isaiah 51. Isaiah chapter 51. Isaiah 51, verse 9, his powerful arm. 
51.9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Here, in the days of old, when God cut Rahab in pieces, pierced the dragon, he's not referring to Rahab the harlot. He's referring to another incident, likely the Egyptians, when he was able to cut them off and destroy them. It says here that it was the arm of the Lord that was so powerful to do so. God's arm, figuratively speaking, of course, God's arm. Well, how does God's arm, his powerful arm, work? By the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verses 6 to 8. John 3, 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The flesh produces flesh, the Spirit produces spirit. We must be born of the Spirit. Not merely by human parents, we need to be born of the Spirit to have this eternal life. John 6, 63. John 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and are life. The words of Christ and the Spirit of Christ give life. The flesh profit Profits nothing. The way of life is by the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit is not revealed to everyone. His power is only revealed to some. Who are they? 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 to 16. 1 Corinthians 2, 6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man? which is in him. Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. 
But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. There's a clear distinction here in chapter 2, 6 to 16, that there are men who hear the wisdom of God, the words of God, but they don't understand and receive them. They're not saved. And then, then there are others who are saved by these words of wisdom because of the Holy Spirit working in them. The Holy Spirit is accompanying the preaching of the word, but he works in the heart of a few who hear that word. That's the essential point the apostle makes here. We see here in verses six and seven, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. God predestined before the ages to our glory, but not to the glory of the wisdom of the rulers of this age, not to their benefit, but for our benefit. The rulers of this age did not understand it, did not receive it. They weren't benefiting from it because if they had benefited from it, verse 8 says, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. It wasn't Peter, James, and John who impaled Christ on the cross. Who was it? It was Herod, Pilate, Judas. It was the chief priests. It was the Pharisees. It was the mob saying, crucify him, crucify him, right? It was they who put him on the cross. And he says, if they were believers, if God predestined them, if they had the Holy Spirit teaching them, indwelling them, they wouldn't have done that. Those who don't do that they are the ones who crucified the Lord of glory. And verse 15, the natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They think the Spirit's words of wisdom are foolishness. They don't understand, they cannot understand, it says. They, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or spiritually judged. God has spiritually judged them. They cannot understand the things the Spirit teaches by the preaching of the words of wisdom. They don't, they don't and won't accept the things of the Spirit of God, and they perish for all eternity. This is the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, the arm of the Lord being revealed. The arm of the Lord isn't revealed. You see, he says he revealed these things to us, but not to them because he only does it to a few compared to the many. Verse 39. We have now come to John 12, 39. For this cause or for this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again. The last time we saw in verse 37, they were not believing in him. Or we could say they did not believe. 
They did not believe is the fact of what they did. They did not believe. The ability is expressed in verse 39. They could not believe. They were unable to believe. Belief was withheld from them. They did not believe in 37. In 39, they could not believe. And yes, literally in the original language and translated correctly, they could not believe. The inability, the incapability of believing is expressed there in verse 39. There is no doubt about that. The commentators are unable to get rid of that fact. They ignore that fact, but they can't get rid of that fact. That's usually how free will commentators, Arminian commentators, ignore or dismiss verses 39 and 40. They do it on verse 40 also. 39 and 40, they cannot grammatically deny what's there, but once they announce grammatically what's there, they mitigate it. They mitigate it. They take away from the sting of it, the sting to the flesh. They take away from the sting of it and ignore it or explain it away. They rationalize it away. That's what free will commentators or Armenian commentators, Pelagian commentators, that's how they handle verses 39 and 40. However, if we are trying to be objective, if we're trying not to distort God's word, which is plain and evident, it's not hard to figure out. If we weren't studying such a hot topic and you were to ask somebody, for this reason they could not believe, If you were to explain that simple sentence to somebody, aside from a hot potato kind of topic, and without any contention in the room, and you're just calmly talking to one another, everybody knows what this means. For this reason, they could not believe. Everybody knows what that means. It's not hard. It's not hard to figure it out. And God has made His Word clear enough on many subjects that we must know so that we might believe them. You can read it yourself. You can have a friend read it and explain it to you. Or you could have a preacher read it and explain it to you. Or you could have a commentator read it and explain it to you. It's all right there. It's not difficult to understand. Like I said, if you do read a commentator or you have an Armenian friend, what will they do? They'll say, yeah, but, and then spend the rest of the time ignoring what the verse says. But they won't honestly deal with it. Commentators do the same, as I said. It clearly says they could not believe. If they could not believe, is this inability to believe, incapability of believing, was it meant, since he says, for Isaiah said again, was it meant only for Isaiah's time or for all times? Was it only Isaiah's or for all time? Well, here in John, we see in verse 40, he's quoting Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. We read that a few moments ago. He's quoting specifically verse 10, but we should take verses 9 and 10 together. Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. He's quoting verse 10. Take it together because that's where the sentence starts. But the main point is in verse 10. Okay, we saw it was true for Isaiah. 
700 BC. It was true of Isaiah. Matthew 13. Matthew chapter 13. On another occasion, because Matthew 13 is not the, the same occasion as John 12. John 12 is right before the final week of Christ. He has entered Jerusalem, so it's about the final week of Christ. But Matthew 13 is midpoint in his ministry. Midpoint in his ministry, when he announced the parable of the sower, his disciples privately asked him, why are you speaking in parables? 13, 14, and 15. Matthew 13, 14, and 15. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in their case, the, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand, and you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn again, and I heal them. In this case also, on another occasion, during the ministry of Christ, this was fulfilled. The multitudes who heard his words, the words of Christ, would not, could not believe the words of Christ. So we've proven here from Isaiah 6, now Matthew 13 and John 12, we have three, we have three separate occasions where this occurs. But that's not all. Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28, 23. Acts 28, 23 to 29. This is the Apostle Paul preaching the gospel in Jerusalem when he is in house arrest. He's in house arrest. The Jews come to him and he's preaching the gospel and he says, watch out, make sure this isn't true of you. Acts chapter 28, another occasion, which would have taken place at least three decades later. Christ in his ministry would be eighty thirty. The time of his imprisonment, his first Roman imprisonment, would have been about A.D. 60 or a couple of years after that, A.D. 60. So we have three decades, 30 years later, Paul cites Isaiah. Acts 28, 23. And when they had set a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets, from morning until evening. And some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your father, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn again, and I heal them. Let it be known to you, therefore, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. And when he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among 
themselves. Paul knows they are walking away because they hate what he's saying. And he's warning them, he's telling them, this should not be true of you, but it may be true of you. You're walking away. Don't have these dull ears, dull heart, ears that scarcely hear and eyes that hardly see. Don't be that way in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Okay? So it is multi-generational. It happens throughout all eras, this kind of they could not believe. Also, how about the could not part? The inability because of the sovereignty of God. We're not speaking now of the will of man, which is a factor, but now we're speaking of the will of God, the sovereign will of God. Is this also true in this case? Yes. We have two examples. Mark 4. The first one is Mark chapter 4, verses 10 to 12. Mark 4, 10 to 12. Mark 4, 10 to 12. Is God making it impossible for them to believe? Is that why John said in John 12, 39, they could not believe? Mark 4, 10 to 12 confirms it, and we'll see one more place. Mark 4, 10. This is the same parable of the sower from Matthew 13. Mark 4, 10. And as soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the 12, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, get everything in parables. In order that... In order that, literally, in order that. Why is that important? Because it's expressing purpose. Whose purpose? God's purpose. In order that or so that, while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand, lest they return again and be forgiven. God has a definite purpose in making them see and not see, hear and not hear. He has a purpose in order that. Luke chapter 8. Luke 8 and verse 9. Luke 8 verses 9 and 10. Luke also, in his version of the parable of the sower. Sorry, it's Luke chapter 8, yes, verses 9 and 10. And his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable might be. And he said, To you it is granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, in order that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. To you, to a smaller group of disciples, to you you understand, God granted you to understand these parables, but to the rest of the people, no. In order that, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. In order that, literally the case, from the original language and here, in order that expresses God's purpose in expressing parables. If you express a parable, you put some distance between the parable, the hearing of the parable, and the true meaning of the parable, 
Those who have hard hearts will say, what's he talking about? He's talking about something weird and crazy. I don't want to understand. I'm just going to walk away. I'll bear with it for another five minutes and then I'll walk away. I don't want to hear it. So they don't want to figure out what the parable means. And if they don't figure it out, they won't be saved. Well, why did Jesus speak in parables? So that some people would be annoyed at it, walk away, not contemplate it for their own salvation. Just walk away and not be saved. See and not see, hear and not understand. On purpose, because it says, in order that. So, they could not believe because God intended it to be that way. Moreover, it says in John 12, verse 40, He has blinded their eyes. He has blinded their eyes. Who is the he of he has blinded? The he is not the individual. The he is not the unbeliever. The he has to be God or Christ, either the Father or the Son. And to that point, it's irrelevant to the point we're making. It's God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God has blinded their eyes. God has hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. The I is God also. God blinds and God heals. God is the active blinder. He's the active hardener, if we may coin a word. He's the active duller. He's the one, if we're coining words. He's the active one doing it. He is the agent blinding people. God is. That's clearly asserted in verse 40. It was asserted in verses 38 and 39 also. But it's reiterated here in verse 40. Now, if this notion, if this thought that God purposely blinds people is strange, if it's unknown to you, you have never heard it, you've never read it, you've never seen it in the Bible, well, it shouldn't be strange. It shouldn't be if we read the Bible. And let's take a a journey through a few passages of the Bible to see that this is, in fact, the case. Joshua chapter 11. Joshua chapter 11. The people of Israel are warring with the Canaanites. They are warring with the Canaanites. Most of the time, the Canaanites resist and they engage Israel in battle and are defeated. Most of the time. Most Canaanites and most of the time they are defeated in the book of Joshua. Well, why is it, why is it that they persist in the face of obvious defeat? Why is it that they persist in the, fa- in the face of obvious potential defeat? They all heard what God did to the Egyptians in the land of Egypt, in the desert at the Red Sea, what he did to previous wars or battles with the Canaanites. They all heard about it all. But why did those who heard about all of those previous victories of Israel by the arm of the Lord, this great power of God, how in the world would they see all of that and continue going like they were headstrong, 
headlong into battle to their own doom. Why would they do that? You would think they would have enough sense not to do that. Why? Joshua 11, verse 20, explains why. 11, verse 20. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, to meet Israel in battle, in order that he might utterly destroy them. The he is Joshua. Destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Joshua, the commander of Israel, right? It says, why is it that Joshua faced persistent battles with people who should have known better? It was of the Lord to harden their hearts. So it was of the Lord's purpose, the Lord's will to harden their hearts. And that hardening of the hearts of the Canaanites caused them to meet Israel in battle. And when that was caused, Joshua and the rest of Israel's military destroyed them. And the Canaanites received no mercy. Those that engaged in battle received no mercy. They were destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses to destroy them. But if they had no hardness of heart from the Lord, and instead the grace of God, the mercy of God, like Rahab the harlot, and the Gibeonites and others, they received some mercy. They received mercy, but the others did not receive mercy. Why? Because God hardened their hearts. Another, Joshua, or Judges. Judges chapter 9. Judges chapter 9, verses 22 to 25. Judges 9, 22 to 25. We now come to Abimelech. Abimelech was a wicked man, a wicked man who murdered 70 of his relatives. A wicked man, and he wanted to be king. He became king temporarily, but then God made sure he was destroyed. Judges 9, 22. Now Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. Then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem, and the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. In order that, in order that, why? In order that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbaal might come and their blood might be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the men of Shechem said, men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains and they robbed all who might pass by them along the road and it was told to Abimelech. How is it that the alliance Abimelech had with the Shechemites ended up being uh, betrayal and treachery between the two? How did that happen? They were allies, Abimelech and the Shechemites, they were allies to destroy others but then suddenly, after three years, they're not allies. They are enemies of each other. And they're seeking to put each other to death. It says in verse 23, God sent an evil spirit between them. God sent an evil spirit. And then God got his way. 56, 9, 56. Go to the end of the chapter. Judges 9, 56. At the end. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech 
which he had done to his father in killing his 70 brothers. Also God returned all the wickedness of the men of Shechem on their heads, and the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam, came upon them. Jotham cursed them in the name of the Lord, and the curse was fulfilled in due time by the will of God. God ensured that wicked men committed evil against each other and destroyed each other. God made sure that that happened. Ezekiel chapter 30. Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 20. Ezekiel 30, verse 20. 30, 20. We'll read 20 to 26. In this period of time, God is destroying Judah, but he's also destroying Egypt and by the hand of the Babylonians or King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians, also known as Chaldeans. He's destroying both Judah and Israel by means of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, is Nebuchadnezzar a believer? Is he a godly man? Is he a holy man? No, he's not. He's a wicked king, pompous king, but a powerful one. Notice what this passage says about the actions of Nebuchadnezzar against other evil kingdoms and people, Egypt and Judah. Verse 20, 30, 20. And it came about in the 11th year, in the first month, on the seventh of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and behold, it has not been bound up for healing or wrapped with a bandage that it may be strong to hold the sword. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and will break his arms, both the strong and the broken, and I will make the sword fall from his hand, and I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them among the lands. And how will he do all of this? How will God do all of this? Verse 24, for I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in his hand, and I will break the arms of Pharaoh so that he will groan before him with the groanings of a wounded man. Thus I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, but the arms of Pharaoh will fall. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he stretches it out against the land of Egypt. When I scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them among the lands, then they will know that I am the Lord. Amen. Isn't that an obvious passage? God uses one wicked man to destroy another wicked man or one wicked nation to destroy another wicked nation. He keeps saying, I, I, I. Verse, it is the word of the Lord, verse 20. Verse 21, I have broken. Verse 22, I am against. 23, I will scatter. 24, I will strengthen the arms. I will break the arms of Pharaoh. I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, 25. And 25 says, I will put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon. There's no literal sword coming from heaven that God says to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, you are a godly man. I know you love me. You fear me. I'm going to give you my sword. You're going to use this sword and you're going to kill all of the Egyptians. You're going to scatter them. You're going to do that. There's nothing like that going on. It's God's sovereign will 
using evil Nebuchadnezzar to kill the evil Egyptians to punish the Egyptians. You might say, in due time, will he destroy Babylon? Yes. He did so in due time, 70 years later, about 70 years later, by the Persians, wicked Persians. This is how God acts in the world, using one evil man to destroy another evil man. So, he uses evil men to destroy evil men. He uses good men, righteous men like Joshua, to destroy evil men. In the same way, when we preach the gospel, it will either give life, open the eyes of a few, or not. It will do so or not on the occasion. But when it does, we should not be surprised and alarmed. If the vast majority of them, that word blinds them. He has blinded their eyes. It's God doing it through us. It's not us. We have nothing in the, in the matter. It's really coming from the hand of God. Furthermore, what is it that they give up? What is it that they forfeit? What is it that they lose? What is it that they don't gain? They are described here as sick, or it says, I heal them. You see, men don't consider themselves sick. They don't consider themselves diseased. They don't think they have a fatal disease. They think they have a temporary disease. They don't think they have a deadly disease at all. Their disease, yes, it's minor. It's a scratch here or there. It's a discomfort here or there. But it's not a disease that has eternal, fatal consequences. That is the problem. God is the healer. He called himself the healer in Exodus 15, 26. I, the Lord, am your healer. The same, he calls himself a healer, I heal Zion in Jeremiah 30, verse 17. God is the healer, Psalm 103, verse 3, who forgives all your transgressions and heals all your diseases. Yes, God is the healer, but they refuse to see that they are so desperately in need of God's healing. Isaiah describes it. In Isaiah 1, 5, and 6. Isaiah 1, 5, and 6. Isaiah 1, verse 5. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. The human condition is just as he's describing it, spiritually speaking. There's no place else on the body to be stricken, to be hit. Because the whole body is so numb. It's so numb. It There's no other place to be stricken. There's damage throughout the whole body. He says, from the sole of the foot to the crown of the head. From head to toe. He's saying, this is the way the whole soul is. 
Um, why? Because we continue in rebellion. Our whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. We are full of nothing but bruises, welts, raw wounds. Nothing that is being treated. We have an untreated deadly disease. That's what we have. An untreated deadly disease. Therefore, the deadly disease can only be healed by the word of life, the gospel. Can only be healed by the spirit of life, who is the spirit of Christ. Can only be healed by our great God. When people are blinded, this is what they forfeit. When they are blinded, this is what they forfeit. They are in danger of being sick forever, being diseased forever, without any hope of restoration, no help of sound health, no hope of wholesome life, no hope at all. Because they are rejecting the only true and living God by their own will, and yes, by the sovereign will of God. This is what is so grave. This is what is so important that we must understand. When we talk about the things of God, we're not talking about trivial and light matters. We're not talking about things that are just superficial things. The Bible is talking about very serious things, very important, grave matters. Matters that we have to take solemnly or else we risk not being healed of our diseases. So let's listen. May it be true of us that we are like the remnant. May we not be like the crowds, the multitudes. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.